press the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get daily updates from the front. From the journalists of The Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Claire Harvey. It's Tuesday, August 9. Aged care workers need an urgent, significant pay rise, the Albanese government has told the Fair Work Commission. Unions want 25%. And although the government hasn't nominated a figure, it says it's unacceptable that carers are paid less than $22 per hour in some cases. Queensland's Environment Department has warned Clive Palmer his proposed coal-fired power station poses an irreversible risk to the environment. It's the first hint Palmer's mine in the Galilee Basin could be rejected. Palmer says the mine would be carbon neutral. An emotional former New South Wales politician says he's not corrupt and wishes he'd never applied for a controversial half-million-dollar job. The scandal is threatening to bring down the government. Stay with us in just a moment. John Barillaro lets rip about Labor's claims of jobs for the boys. Plus, later in the episode, the Indigenous leader who lies in an unmarked grave in Sydney's suburbs. One of Australia's most colourful politicians has opened both barrels after an alleged jobs for the boys scandal engulfed the government he used to serve. There was nothing to know. There was nothing to know. Actually, my colleagues publicly knew. A lot of my colleagues... you were going to resign. They might have appreciated being... Actually, it was quite public. There was quite public that a lot of my colleagues knew that I was not facing the next election. Mr Barillaro, I've just... Mr Barillaro, order, order. John Barillaro, a former carpenter from Queanbeyan who rose to be the leader of New South Wales National Party and Deputy Premier, quit politics in October and within months was announced as the winner of a plum job from his old trade portfolio, a newly created position of New South Wales trade representative to the Americas. That's a $500,000 a year gig, and it came with lavish offices in New York City. Problem was, the job had already been offered to someone else, and the accusation is Trade Minister Stuart Ayres gave it to Barillaro as a favour. Not surprisingly, it's caused a massive headache for the government of Dominic Perrottet. At a parliamentary committee, Barillaro has let rip at the Labor opposition, which has tasted blood. If I knew what I knew now, I wouldn't have walked into what was a show. And I'm going to use those terms, I'm sorry to say, because the trauma I've gone through over the last six, seven weeks has been significant. Barillaro is not going to go quietly. He says before he even applied for the job, he consulted the now Treasurer, Matt Keane, who didn't raise any objections and the Premier himself. At no point did anyone say it would create controversy. I think if someone had flagged that early on, and maybe I should have used my own political douse and my own gut fill, and even when accepting the job, I even had hesitation. It took me uh, uh, a little while to make that decision. But at no point did anyone say that this could have been a problem. He also says if Trade Minister Stuart Ayres pulled levers to get him the job, he wasn't aware of it. Integrity scandals have already cost this coalition government two premiers, Barry O'Farrell and Gladys Berejiklian. But Barillaro says this is different. Can you see why the public is suspicious about this whole process? I applied for a job, I went through a process, I was offered a job. 
now it looks muddy and, and messy. Yeah, absolutely. I can understand the perception and understand what's occurred in the public. I, I, I'm not. I'm not silly. I understand that. I regret that I took the job. Maybe I should have gone with gut feel. I genuinely believe the process was fair and right, and that would give me the cover or the <coughs> tools when the political attack was always going to come. It hasn't been as clean as it should be, should have been, and I'm I'm the victim out of that. I'm not the perpetrator. The government is already hanging by its fingernails, holding just 45 of the lower house's 93 seats. Perrottet sacked a minister last week in an unrelated scandal, and the minister at the centre of this drama, Stuart Ayres, has stood aside pending the outcome of the Barilaro investigation. Barilaro's back for another grilling on Friday. I will absolutely refute that disgusting slur and accusation. Which part of it's disgusting? No, no, it is. You're, you're, Which you're part actually, of it? You're making me out to be corrupt. The Eora Man, Benelong, is one of the most significant figures in Australian history. So why has nothing been done to commemorate his final resting place? Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. There's a tug of war between two Indigenous groups about what to do with the final resting place of Eora leader Wulawara Benelong. Benelong's burial site was discovered in 2011 in front of a two-storey, four-bedroom home in Putney in Sydney's suburbs. The site was bought by the New South Wales government in 2018 and since then, well, nothing much has happened. Nicholas Jensen is a journalist with The Australian and he's been investigating. Nick, let's start by talking about Benelong. He was one of the most significant figures in early contact between Eora people of the Sydney region and the British. Who was he? Benelong was an Indigenous Eora man who was, as you say, Claire, a really decisive and remarkable figure in the early history of, of the Port Jackson settlement. He was famously captured by the British in 1789 under Governor Arthur Phillips' orders, and he became one of the first cultural go-betweens or interpreters for the European settlers in, in those early years of the colony. But he lived an incredible life and, and formed an unlikely friendship with Philip, considering he'd uh, ordered his abduction. This is how he was described by one of the early colonists, Watkin Tench. Benelong we judged to be about 26 years old, of good stature and stoutly made, with a bold, intrepid countenance which bespoke defiance and revenge. Love and war seemed his favourite pursuits, in both of which he had suffered severely. His head was disfigured by several scars, a spear had passed through his arm and another through his leg. His temper seemed pliant and his relish of our society so great that hardly anyone judged he would attempt to quit us, which were the means of escape put within his reach. Nevertheless, it was thought proper to continue a watch over him. And 
been along, seemed to understand that there was some goodwill underneath Philip's actions, didn't he? He did. I think that this story and their relationship has been viewed, particularly by the two groups that are involved in this story, as a story of reconciliation, where there is cultural understanding on both sides, and both men make an attempt to try and understand each other. Yeah. After Ben Along had lived with Philip for a while, he left and went back to live in the Sydney area. In fact, Nick Benelong was present when Arthur Philip was speared. This is something that's been written about by a lot of historians Mm. and the details are in contention. But Philip approached a group of men of whom Benelong was one, possibly reached out his hand in what he thought was a gesture of handshake and was ultimately speared. But this again is an example of misunderstanding really, isn't it? But there were layers of cultural meaning beneath the actions on both sides that are still up for debate. Yes, historians have debated this really iconic scene in Australia's early settlement for a long, long time, and I think we'll keep doing so. Philip did recover from his wounds, and I think what's remarkable is that he understood that by spearing him and not killing him, they're engaging in a ritual practice that was a form of punishment because they had abducted Ben Long. But Philip understood that and did not seek reprisal. So Ben Long returned to closer contact with Philip and then, as you say, went back to England with him, then returned to Australia, made contact with a brewer, James Squire, and then died on the property owned by James Squire and was buried on that property, which is now the the setting of this suburban home in Putney. Who else is in this grave? He's buried with his fourth wife, Burong and with an Indigenous boy, Nanbari, who was actually also a really interesting figure too in the early colony because he acted as one of the first Indigenous spies that went inside Philip's house and was a kind of informant for Indigenous people. So how was this grave found in 2011? How, how was it actually identified? Environmental scientists and archaeologists had known for quite some time that Ben Long was buried in this area, which is pretty nondescript suburban location in northeast Sydney. But it was in 2011 that the environmental scientist Peter Mitchell really pinpointed the location of where these three figures were, were buried. It says a lot, Nick, about our attitude to our own history that this grave was neglected for so long, um, it had a suburban home built on top of it, and that now still really nothing has been done to mark this grave. Right. And this is the big bone of contention of the Benelong Putney project that was set up about seven years after they pinpointed the location of the three bodies. The committee lobbied the New South Wales government to purchase the site in 2018 when it looked as though it would be purchased by foreign developers who were keen to build a duplex on the site. So they quickly jumped into gear and were appointed the peak consultative body for developing a memorial on this site. But then they were replaced by the Sydney Metropolitan Aboriginal Land Council, who are now the custodians of the site. And so what's the plan, ultimately? Is this going to be turned into some sort of museum or is it going to be, is the house going to be demolished? Well, it's still unclear. I mean, the vision for the Benelong Putney project was some kind of educational centre, perhaps even a museum, but certainly a large memorial for Benelong at the gravesite or certainly within proximity to it. But the Land Council took issue with this and 
they've said that plans are still ongoing about what they are going to do with the site, that they are going to appoint a committee and there will be a further consultation process. And for the members of the Benelon Putney project who have been kind of cast aside, this is unacceptable. It's been four years. Why has nothing been done? And I think the key point here for the members of this group, which is now disbanded, is that we are now at a time where we're discussing big issues to do with, you know, Indigenous reconciliation in Australia, particularly the voice to parliament. So for them, it's an especially apposite time for us to be considering projects where we celebrate early Indigenous figures like Benelong. Yeah, it seems like a fairly low bar to set ourselves that we would honour in some way this very significant figure in, in Indigenous history. It does. But in fairness to the Metropolitan Land Council, they do recognise that the three people buried at this site are significant and do need to be celebrated. But the difficulty is this has dragged on for quite some time now. COVID has obviously been an issue. It's been four years and it's lost momentum, really. And in the interim, Nick, there has been a celebration of sorts of Benelong's wife, Barangaroo, who was a famous and very fierce fisherwoman in the Sydney Harbour area. And there's been a giant development at one of the points where she used to camp called Barangaroo. There's some contention, though, about whether that really is honouring the history of uh, this area or that her identity has been co-opted for a project that has not much to do with Indigenous people. Yes, and it's interesting comparing Indigenous people's attitudes towards Barangaroo and Benelong because Benelong is seen by some as the more conciliatory leader, whereas Barangaroo is someone who fights and was a figure of staunch resistance. So who's living in the house now? So there's rental tenants in the house and the property is owned by New South Wales government and the Department of Planning. And it must be surreal for them. I mean, they're living on the location of a very famous burial site, though it hasn't got the recognition it deserves, that is in a nondescript cul-de-sac in suburban Sydney. Nicholas Jensen is a journalist with The Australian. If you've been to the service station this week, you'll know petrol prices are back way under $2 a litre and heading towards $1.60. Diesel prices are still much higher though, and that means continuing pressure on the cost of transporting just about everything. You can read all about that and what it means for inflation right now at theaustralian.com.au. A troubled young woman her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.